Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Dr. Elaine Fox is a psychologist, author, and the head of the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Prior to her move to Australia, Dr. Fox founded and directed the Oxford Center for Emotions and Effective Neuroscience, OCEAN at the University of Oxford. I love Ocean to describe that, it makes sense. She is a cognitive psychologist by training. She's a leading mental health researcher combining genetics, psychology, and neuroscience in her work. She also runs Oxford Elite Performance, a consulting group bringing cutting edge science and psychology to those at the top levels of sport, business, and the military. And today she's with us to chat about her new book titled Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. Elaine, welcome. Hi, Jason. Thanks very much. Great to be on. So let's start with defining mental agility, because I think it can mean lots of different things to people. So let's start there. How do you define mental agility? Sure. Well, maybe if I tell you just a little uh, story I heard many years ago when I was in London on the London Underground, I read a, a story um, in in the uh, newspaper there, which literally made me laugh out loud on the train. So it was a story about a, a group of um, armed robbers who had decided that they would hold up a shop, a local store. Um, and one of them was a bus driver. And they decided in their wisdom to use the his bus as the getaway vehicle. So the, the armed robbery went well, you know, they they um, held up this store and off they went in the bus. And of course, the poli- police were very quickly onto them. Um, and what one of the policemen realised very quickly was that the bus was actually following its normal route. <laughs> so rather than taking the straightforward way away in a much quicker way away, it was actually following its normal route. So obviously they were very easily apprehended. And as I said, it, it made me laugh out loud on the train. Um, but actually, I realised, Jason, that this actually was telling us something quite fundamental about psychology. So we all know that when we get very stressed, when we get very anxious and kind of outside our comfort zone, we tend to revert to the familiar. You know, we tend to get rigid in our behavior. So actually that that driver, that getaway driver, wasn't making the best decisions to actually get away. He was reverting to his familiar route. So he just did the familiar thing. And of course, it wasn't the best solution in the problem. So that's what I mean by a kind of mental rigidity. And of course, agility is the opposite of that. So so I think a lot of times in life, we tend to get a little bit, I call it mental arthritis in, in the book. Um, you know, we get a little bit rigid and set in our ways in terms of how we do things. Um, I think we've all had the experience of, you know, you've, you've lost your keys and you keep looking in the same place over and over again, even though you know they're not there. You've checked the place they usually are and they're just not there. So, you know, when we get a bit stressed or rushed, we tend to get quite rigid. Whereas agility is the ability to just really keep much more open, much more flexible and and really try out different solutions to the problems that we're, we're faced with. You mentioned mental arthritis. And when I think of arthritis, I think of something that generally affects people as they age. So in terms of mental agility, 
is it easier to become agile when you're younger and more difficult as you age? And how do you think about that in terms of aging and our ability to become more agile? I think it's a great uh, question. And there's no doubt that children are naturally, I think, a lot more agile. Children tend to be really flexible. They'll try out different things. But as we get older, um, we do tend to get quite a bit more rigid and kind of set in our ways. Um, I suppose our beliefs harden. So so when I'm talking about agility, we're talking about both um, patterns of thinking, you know, how we think about things. So our belief systems, for example, but also our actions, you know, the kind of physical things we can actually do. Um, and I think particularly the the mental agility, that kind of the, the, the thinking processes do tend to be much more agile when we're children, partly because children aren't a set of their ways in terms of their beliefs. They still might have lots of different beliefs, but with education, with experience from their family gradually you know they'll begin to develop maybe political beliefs um, all sorts of social beliefs and of course um, all of us live in a bit of a, a bubble in terms of you know we there's the thing in psychology you've probably heard of called confirmation bias, whereas, you know, we try to seek out information that confirms what we believe to be true. Um, whereas actually, if we're good scientists, you know, what we should be doing is seeking out evidence that disconfirms. But of course, none of us do that. I mean, it's actually it's actually quite a difficult thing to do. You bring up, a, I think, a larger point. Social media is one big confirmation bias bubble. Absolutely, because of, the, because of the algorithm. So if if we do want to become, if we, if we do want to become mentally agile, it sounds like that's something we should at least be aware of. Absolutely. And it's one of the things I do talk about in the book, actually, that uh, there's a lot of psychological research actually showing that uh, just like in, in kind of real life, if you like, on social media, we do tend to live in, in a bubble. We tend to follow like-minded people. We tend to listen to conversations that are similar to us. Um, you know, and actually I did try this out myself where, you know, I went and, and to face different countries, including the US, and deliberately tried to listen to news programs or to, you know, followed people on Twitter um, that I knew would annoy me and, and, you know, views that I knew I wouldn't agree with. And I think it's actually a very good exercise. It's one of the things I recommend in, in Switchcraft um, because it's, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that people should necessarily change their views, but simply listening to different perspectives, listening to different viewpoints um, just it kind of broadens your mind a bit and, and switchcraft is all about diversifying your mind in a way because it's you know one of the big messages of the book is that there is no one size fits all you know we're all seeking a single solution to to kind of make our lives a little bit better so for example we might do something like mindfulness and um, this growth mindset and um, you know this positivity all of that kind of stuff all of that's very good in this in certain circumstances but none of those techniques are are ideal for every single situation we're likely to be confronted with so the message of switchcraft is really that we need to have lots of coping strategies available to us lots of different ways of thinking um, and just develop the technique of using the right one in the right situation that's the trick really Hearing your example of, of, you know, on social media specifically, trying to follow people with opposing views. So this is something I try to practice. I follow politically people on the extremes of both sides on social media. And I'll often, specifically around election season, will watch Fox and MSNBC, like next to each other, just to go back and forth, just to try to understand 
what's what's going on. And so it's something. Look, I'm trying. Sometimes it's difficult to to follow to follow this, whether it's on TV or social media, and I struggle with it. But I, I try just to try to understand what's being messaged on the extremes of both sides. Absolutely, and and I did the same thing actually. And during the um, the whole Brexit debate in in the UK, when I was I was in Oxford at the time, and obviously there was very polarized views there. Some people thought the UK should leave Europe. Others absolutely thought they should remain. Um, and it was a similar thing. I tried to actually follow both sides quite closely. And it it, it did give you a very interesting perspective on, on very extreme views over the same issue. And, and I try to do the same thing in health and wellness too, in terms of, you know, diet in, in so many ways is is an ideology. Um, and in a world of extremes, you know, carnivore, vegan, you know, two different, I, I try to look at both. But with all that said, how does one know if they're mentally agile? If someone's listening, it, <laughs> or they say, well, you know, I'm pretty rigid, or, you know, I do a pretty good job here. How, how does one get a sense of how well they're doing here? I think, um, well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I do have a questionnaire in the book, which, you know, that's a simple kind of test where you can test yourself. But I think it's really just all of us can just really ask ourselves, you know, are we are we kind of consistently doing things in a similar way? You know, are we really pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone? We might think we are, but, you know, looking very carefully and really asking ourselves and maybe asking some friends is often a very good way of doing that. You know, asking people, do you think I'm a bit set on my ways? Because often we don't quite realise that. Um, And one of the interesting things is it's in terms of how the brain actually works. There's there's a strange kind of paradox, um, which I do talk about in the book, where um, our brain is actually designed... um, to be exquisitely agile. So the, the way the brain works is predicting what's likely to happen next. So we don't react to things in the environment. We actually predict what's likely to happen. And then the brain either gets an error signal if we haven't got it quite right, or if we have got it right, then that's fine. And that's kind of how learning happens. Now, that's a very effective system and gives us tremendous agility because it means that we can uh, the brain is capable of you know making different decisions depending on the outcome of the predictions but the problem with that is it's highly highly energy consuming so the brain is really driven to save energy that's one of the number one tasks that the brain does just save energy at all costs so of course getting into habits, getting into more rigid ways of doing things, that's great for saving energy and can be very efficient. Um, But actually, it can lead us into being a little bit rigid and a little bit blind. And I think all of us have had that experience of, you know, walking around and I suppose kind of, you know, almost kind of expecting the world to be the way we want it to be rather than actually the way it is. So there may be people, for example, who we think are trustworthy, but there may be clues all over the place that actually maybe they're not quite as trustworthy as we think. Um, so really opening our mind a bit, that's really getting at the heart of, of agility. So I think all of those things, if you really look at yourself carefully, you can generally figure out. The other kind of thing is just, you know, if if you've been trying to solve a particular problem and uh, you, you're just, you're trying the same thing over and over and it's just not working. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, used, I, I do some work with elite athletes and, you know, we, we had a couple of athletes who, um, you know, so I would work very closely with the coaches, you know, and looking at different training schedules. Um, I would be working on kind of mental training schedules. Um, and what you find sometimes is that people are training and training and training using the same schedule and they're just not improving. 
So their their times aren't improving. They're just not getting any better. But yes, their tendency is I just need to keep going. I need to really be very persistent and keep going. And and sometimes that is what's required, you know, and that's really what switchcraft is all about. Sometimes the right decision is to stick with what you're doing and keep going. But actually, sometimes um, you need to switch. Sometimes the, the message is coming back loud and clear. This method just isn't working for whatever reason. It might work for somebody else, but it's just not working for you. So it's, it's, it's having that ability to say, clearly, this isn't really working. Uh, so actually, let's give something else a, a go. Let's let's try another approach. Um, and in a lot of the studies I've, I've done, for example, we've looked at um, teenagers and young people. And what I find is that the most resilient uh, kids really are the ones who are much more agile, the ones who will actually try out different things and will fairly quickly come to the realization that, you know, their approach to whatever it is, isn't really working. So they'll try something else. Whereas other uh, children who, particularly those who are a bit more prone to anxiety and worry, they tend to get quite rigid in how they try to solve problems. So, and often with people who are anxious generally, um, the one of the problems is trying to control every situation, overly control every situation. And of course, the whole reason we need agility is because we live in a highly uncertain world. I mean, it's a, it's a very changeable, uncertain world and always has been. So I think the way to approach that kind of world is by being as agile as, as possible. So how do you think about the blend of routine and habit? Because decision fatigue is very real and at the same time being open to possibility. So me, for example, I, I am a creature of habit and, and I, I love routine. And part of it, part of the reason why is because I'm an entrepreneur and there is a huge amount of unpredictability and uncertainty, which I am fairly comfortable with. I am comfortable. I am somewhat comfortable with the uncomfortable because it's, it's part of, I have to be, you can't be an entrepreneur or not. So with that said, me having routine and some habits where I'm pretty rigid about allows me to create space for this other side of me, which is highly variable and unpredictable. Sure. And yeah, and absolutely. That's that's actually you know an, an extremely healthy way of going about it. And of course, habits are excellent for exactly that reason. Um, so what they do is they take away the decision making. So if we have a routine, if we have a decision, um, so I do some running, for example. I, I'm trying to get back into regular running, and and I know if I just think, oh well, I'll go for a run when I feel like it. Chances are it won't happen, or you know it won't happen as as frequently as it should. Whereas if I decide, okay, you know, six a.m in the morning or 7 a.m. in the morning, whatever time it is, I'll go for a run regardless. Um, once you once you decide to be rigid about something like that, it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to do it. And, and that's really the kind of point of switchcraft is that there are some situations where habit and routine are really, really important. But there are other situations where if for whatever reason that habit is working against us and isn't really, we're not really solving our problems. So if, for example, you say, Jason, like say as an entrepreneur, if you're running a business, if you're, you know, producing a product or or producing something that just, it just clearly isn't working. Um, you know, at some point you have to decide this isn't working. I need to try something different. So it's about just having that flexibility and, and the flexibility to sometimes stick with a habit or a routine and sometimes switch to something else. Well, I think one of the hardest things as an entrepreneur, but also as, as any, any human being is knowing when to push through and push forward 
and knowing when to walk away. When Absolutely. And that is tough. And Absolutely. Be, being good at it is skilled. Absolutely. And so let's zoom back out. The title of the book is Switchcraft. And within Switchcraft, you have these four pillars. So we've talked a lot about mental agility. So you've got mental agility, self-awareness, emotional awareness, and situational situational awareness. So can you walk us through each of the pillars and, and provide some real-world examples? We've already done mental agility, unless there's anything else you want to add. But let's go to self-awareness, emotional awareness, and situational awareness. Yeah. So I think, as I said at the beginning, so Switchcraft is really about developing this uh, set of mental mental talents, really, to help us deal with a very unpredictable world, a very uncertain world. So the first thing is to accept that uncertainty. And, and then, you know, um, Switchcraft is about then dealing with that. So we've talked about agility, which is, I think, probably one of the most important pillars of Switchcraft. But when I'm talking about agility, it's not agility or flexibility just for its own sake. It's not just having the capability to switch and change. You know, it's actually switching or sticking in the right moment. So informed by the three other pillars. And those other pillars are self-awareness, situational awareness and emotional awareness. So the idea is that, you know, there are times, as we said, where we actually need to stick and be very persistent and gritty. There are other times where we need to switch to a, a different kind of task. Um, so getting that decision right more often than not is really informed by having a deeper sense of self-awareness and you're really understanding our situation in a very in a very good way because if you think about it, obviously to make the right decision, we need to really understand the situation as as, as kind of best we can. So, um, so I think those kind of pillars are really underlie our our agility and help us be agile at the right moment, effectively. And so, if you walk, what's an example of you provided that that. Great example of the, the robbery gone wrong. I'm still thinking about that because in in, some, in in one regard, I'm like, this is kind of brilliant. You know, you do a bus and you do the regular route, like nothing going on here, same bus route, uh, but you got caught. So, you know, not, not brilliant. Uh, so so walk us through some other exa- examples, some, some in real life examples of, of self-awareness, emotional awareness and situational awareness. Okay, so I think self-awareness is, um, so I have a couple of chapters in the book, um, and self-awareness is really about digging deeply into what really drives you, you know, what, what are really your values? Because I think a lot of the time, um, a lot of us live in in a kind of a, a world where we don't really think, we don't really analyze ourselves and what we really want to do and what our values are as, as deeply as possibly we should. Um, and I think there's different levels of self-awareness. Um, one which is important, um, which is kind of interesting, is looking at our different personality types. So so psychology um, you know, has shown that there's five major personality dimensions if you like so it's um it's you know openness to experience is one extroversion um kind of neuroticism or anxiety um agreeableness you know these are the kind of a conscientiousness which is kind of grittiness these are the five the big five that are actually called in in psychology now the interesting thing is understanding a little bit about our personality styles like that is can be very useful because it, it can kind of tell us something about how we're likely to respond can you just go over the five again i thought they were so interesting yeah, it's actually the it's actually ocean, funny enough, the same as my lab, although that could be a bit confusing. But it's that's a good acronym to remember it. So ocean it's openness to experience, um, conscientiousness, and the E is extroversion, so extroversion, introversion, um, A is agreeableness, 
and neuroticism. So those big five kind of capture, uh, you know, the, all of the dimensions of personality. And there's a lot of psychological research behind that. Um, and the really interesting thing, Jason, is that um, that's a really useful, it's useful to know. And we, I have little tests in the book where you can establish that. You can also do them online quite easily. You can find ways to measure your those personality um, traits. But it's some psychologists have called this uh, the the psychology of the stranger, which I always think is a lovely phrase, because the idea is that we can understand other people by looking at those dimensions. You know, almost without doing a quiz or anything, you could look at your friends and say, okay, are they extroverted, introverted? Are they conscientious? Are they a bit neurotic or not? You know, you can more or less work out just by knowing somebody what their kind of traits are um, and likewise ourselves so that's why it's called the psychology of the stranger because it's actually quite a superficial level of self-awareness it's useful it is helpful to us in some situations but actually it's, it's a little bit superficial so in the book I also talk about diving a bit deeper and there's some really interesting research now around um, the importance of understanding your own um life narrative, if you like, your own life story. Um, and there's little simple tests you can do. So, for example, um, you know, I might ask somebody to write out about 100 words on the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. So just think of the worst moment um, and write down as much detail as you can about that. You know, what actually happened? Um, was anybody else there? Were you on your own? Um, you know, just really try and flesh out how you felt about the situation, whether any sights and smells or of that kind of stuff um, and then another kind of task is simply you think about the best moment in in your life so same kind of thing just put in as much detail as possible and then in the book um, I give kind of different ways of analyzing that that comes from psychological research so there's different ways you can kind of look at how your story and how your descriptions unfold so you can come up with different types of narratives um, so what I don't want to give away too much if we just want to do this ourselves but one of the life's narratives for example is kind of if you like a kind of redemption story so it might be that you know sometimes your stories show that actually lots of stuff goes wrong for you but actually in the end it turns out all right so in the end it kind of turns around and, and is fine and um, or it might be more negative kind of life narrative which is something you would need to kind of really look at if if it turns out that actually you know you've had lots of opportunities but actually it goes pear-shaped or goes a bit wrong in the end so you know that gives you as you can imagine that gives you a much deeper level of self-understanding and self-awareness than just looking at the kind of personality styles. Um, so I think that's kind of really interesting. And another thing I really kind of talk about in, in, in the book in terms of self-awareness is um, I think a lot of us have become a little bit disconnected from our bodies, if you like, in, in the modern world. So I think people like yourself who do a lot of exercise and probably people who listen to your podcast probably aren't in that category. Because if you do a lot of exercise, you tend to tune in a bit more to your physical body. But a lot of people don't. A lot of people have become very disconnected. And I think, you know, our body gives us a lot of information actually about how things are going. Um, and I think just, you know, quietening ourselves down, listening, tuning in to those kind of things, uh, you know, can be really, really important. It gives us a, another another level, if you like, of, of self-awareness that often we don't really tune into, particularly in this, you know, we live in a very noisy world where we have phones bleeping all the time, notifications going off. So sometimes just sitting quietly, just actually being aware of how we're feeling, all of that's actually really important and gives you a different, a, a slightly different level of understanding. 
hundred percent agree. And I think it's unfortunately very easy to become numb to our thoughts, numb to our bodies. Um, and I wholeheartedly agree that the more attuned you are, um, and I think a, a way to get more tuned to your body is through nutrition is through working out. You start to feel more, uh, I think ultimately it's not only good for your physical health, but, but your mental health. And Absolutely. Yeah. With that said, I, I want to come back to this, this exercise where you ask what's the worst thing and best thing that happened to me. I'm curious, what do most people say? Are, is there a theme there? I, I'm assuming I'm thinking out loud, like death is probably a theme for worst thing. And then best thing, maybe it's like death and birth, like marriage and divorce. Like, like what, what are the, am I right? Or. Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, a lot of the time you don't know when you do research in this area because you don't, so people don't reveal it to you necessarily. So it's kind of a, a private thing because obviously people might be quite sensitive about some some things. So the idea is you just write it down privately. You don't have to say, you know, what it actually is other than to yourself. So a lot of the time, you know, I'm, I've, I've done a little bit of research on this and, um, you know, we always make sure that we keep that confidential so people don't need to reveal to us what the actual event is. Um, but what they do is they have... We, we try to explain that the important thing is to put in as much detail as, as possible, you know, as particularly the physical kind of detail, like was there sounds and smells and sights. Um, and as you say, you know, you can imagine um, a lot of the time would be death would be one of the big ones there, like somebody close to you has died or got very ill. Maybe you got very ill. Um, so personal illness is, is often you know, a big theme, um, you know, there are all sorts of positive events, like maybe a new relationship, you know, a new job, a new career, lots of different things. But but the interesting thing is actually, you know, as a researcher, you know, often people don't reveal the precise events, but you can still, it doesn't really matter what the event is. You can still work out these different kind of little um, narratives and how things, how, how you're kind of describing things to yourself. And um, I'll give you one example of of somebody who, um, and, and he did kind of tell me a few of these kind of different things. So it was kind of a related thing we were doing. So uh, this is somebody who was a, a police officer um, and had been having a little bit of trouble with his, his wife and his family and, you know, relationship wasn't wasn't going very well um and his wife felt that he was very controlling a lot of the time and by doing this exercise he got a really profound insight into himself so the kind of stories he told was he said when he was very young he actually saved a young baby who'd fallen into a pond so he saved this baby who'd fallen into a pond he very quickly got the baby out and of course he got a lot of adulation for that and you know a, a lot of kind of very positive feedback um and then there were lots of other events throughout his life he said for example he gave gave up drinking alcohol when he was quite young so that he could be the driver. So he could drive his friends to places where they wanted to drink alcohol and he would drive them home safely and make sure they got home safely. And what he realized, he just got this insight that actually his life life narrative was about being a protector. He was kind of always there. He put himself in terms of protecting. And of course, which is a really positive thing in many ways, but in terms of his family and his wife, you know, she felt he was being overly protective, that he was almost overly protecting and overly controlling of the children and at her and the family. And once he got that insight, he realized actually it was true that, you know, he always cast himself in that role. But he said, realized sometimes people didn't particularly want him to be in that role all of the time, you know. Um, and, and so actually he really found that very, very kind of helpful and very insightful. Interesting. You know, I, I, I've been trying to self-diagnose myself during this whole asking 
this question. And so, you know, for me on paper, it would be my father dropped out of a heart attack when I was 19. So here, here then gone. Um, it was traumatic, uh, but I, I ultimately got through it. And if I think about, you know, who I am today, I would say that was a transformative event and largely shaped who I am as an adult. Uh, you know, I don't know if I would be the entrepreneur I am, uh, and able to, you know, roll with the punches, deal with adversity, uh, get through many difficult events and periods in my life with that event. So, you know, on one hand, on, I, 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 you know, I say on paper, you know, losing a parent suddenly is very dramatic as a teenager. And, you know, and I, I go back to my college years and twenties and I drank and partied way too much. I think it was me sort of self-medicating my way through it. Um, even though I was kind of fine, if you will. Um, but with that said, I'm saying, okay, you know, on paper, this happened. Um, but I kind of hate to say it, but, um, I don't know if I would change it because I look at who I am today, even though it was extraordinarily painful, this was, I don't, I don't know who I'd be. Exactly. I think that's, yeah, that's very, very powerful, Jason. It's, um, and I think that is often the case, like when we have those kind of situations, which are inherently bad situations, but actually often we really learn from them and it kind of does make us who we are. And, and one of the things that a lot of the research now in psychology is telling us is that people are far more resilient than we think. Yeah, you know, all of us, and it's, it's only when you have a really horrible thing like that happen, or you know, you have a big adversity. It's only then you really realize how resilient actually you are. You know, a lot of people think, "Oh, I could never cope if this happened. If if my best friend died, you know, I wouldn't be able to cope. If if I got ill, I wouldn't be able to cope." Was actually, if they do go through those experiences, people find, you know, they are actually a lot more resilient than they they thought. And this is exactly what the research shows. I mean, there's been a lot of research after major terrorist attacks, for example, and earthquakes and tsunamis and you know, major natural disasters. And what the research shows that is about about 70 percent of people are actually very resilient. They come through in a very resilient way. About 10 percent um, actually um, grow from the experience. So it's called um, post-traumatic growth. So they actually get better through the experience. And about 10 percent develop PTSD, so they do develop anxiety problems. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of the time when we think about, say, that most recently the pandemic, for example, and all the lockdowns, you know, people were, were worried about a, a kind of a, a pandemic of mental health problems. But actually, the, the resilience research indicates to us that actually that's unlikely to happen. It's, you know, what what's most likely is that people who are already have had mental health issues are likely to be triggered by those kind of situations. But actually, the vast majority of people will find a way to, to cope with it and, and are actually far more resilient than we, we often think. I sure hope so, because the numbers here in the States with regards to the mental health problems we're experiencing, specifically in young adults, young teens, teens, kids weren't in school, uh, the, the numbers are quite horrific. 
Exactly. Um, the, uh, yeah, and we certainly, I, got, I did a, a large study in Oxford. We, we followed um, just over 500 12-year-olds uh, until they were 17. So all through secondary school or high school, I think it would be in the States. Um, and so we, we tested them every roughly every six months or so. And we looked at their genetics. We looked at measures of what I call cognitive biases. So how people, what people notice, how, how they selectively remember information. So we looked at a whole range of those um, kind of things and but even there we do find that there clearly are you know increasing levels of mental health issues but actually the vast majority are still actually quite resilient and and are often surprised themselves at how well they can deal with different different difficult situations so let's bring it back we got a little bit off track but let's i think it was i think it was a good off track let's let's (laughs) circle back to situational and emotional awareness Sure. Yeah. So situational awareness is really uh, it's about, I suppose, waking up a bit and just being alert to the world around us. And, you know, as we were saying, I think a lot of the time uh, we don't really notice what's going on around us. I mean, some are better than others of that. Um, and it, it's particularly as an entrepreneur, it's really, really Re- reading a room, the ability to read a room, read the room. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so important. And it's kind of trusting your intuition as well. I think intuition is something that's actually very powerful. Um, it's not a kind of a, a magical thing. People often think, oh, it's a bit woo-woo and a bit kind of magical. Um, but actually, my take on intuition is that, as I said, we know how the brain works in terms of, of predicting things. And the reason why that system works so well is that the brain remembers everything from the moment we're born, probably from before we're born, actually, even inside the womb. Every sight and every sound and connections between different things are remembered. So there might be a, a particular um, sound or smell and, and pain. So we might have experienced pain, you know, with, with a certain conjunction of things. Now, of course, we've forgotten that. Like something might have happened to you when you were, you know, three years old, which you've forgotten consciously. You can't remember that. But your brain to store that information and I think that's actually and and that's what we kind of then call intuition so sometimes you know you might walk into a room or into a situation and you know sometimes you get that slight feeling of apprehension and you don't quite understand why you know but I think often what is the case is that your brain is actually remembered that in this situation before with this particular combination of things sights sounds whatever um your feelings maybe that that actually something bad happened so so you get this kind of feeling of apprehension and it's not always correct i mean that's not the function of intuition but what it's it's there to kind of guide us guide us in a way to um to really understand the situation we're in or read the room if you like in in a better way so intuition is is a subject i am fascinated by on one hand, I think it is such a powerful tool. And I'm curious about the science of intuition. And you talk about the relationship of context and intuition. And, you know, I want to bring it back to the what you talked about earlier, this idea of the story we tell ourselves, the narrative we tell ourselves. My sense is that plays a significant role in our intuition. And you talk about confirmation bias. I believe that sometimes because of the narrative we have, our intuition could be wildly off. Absolutely. Yes. And so let's just spend a moment on intuition. And how do we get good at it? 
<laughs> exactly. I think it, it is, and it is absolutely true. And I think you're, you're right that, um, you know, a lot of us develop um, ways of thinking and ways. Of, so, for example, I used to do a lot of work with anxious people. And we know that anxious people have, have very negative cognitive biases. So in, in any kind of ambiguous situation, um, they will t- tend to make it the most negative interpretation, whereas actually a situation may be more benign or it may even be positive, but actually somebody prone to anxiety will tend to always jump to the most negative conclusion. So it is true that that can feed into in intuition in a sense. So I think the, the trick is to try and dial down those kind of thoughts as much as possible and try and look as objectively as we can at the situation we're in. And kind of, I suppose, listen to our body, as you said before, like tuning into our body, tuning into those signals and quieting your mind a little bit. Just so sitting maybe in a quiet place, really kind of really looking at a situation and trying to look at it in an as objective a way as you can. Um, And, you know, trying to get rid of some of those kind of negative biases or patterns of biases. I mean, one of the exercises, just going back to kind of agility and flexibility, one of the exercises we can do is, you know, when you think back to an event, say, that really upset you in some way, um, and you probably came up with some negative interpretation. So say, you know, you fell out with a friend or something, and you, you felt that, you know, they'd done something bad or hadn't kind of looked after you well enough. Um, you know, just try and come up with a different interpretation of that situation. Like, is there a different interpretation? And if we do that on a regular basis, it tends to help us actually get a bit more flexible in how we interpret situations. And that just helps as well to to prevent those kind of biases really developing. So that kind of confirmation bias, for example. So I think all of those things can really help us tune into our intuition a bit. Because as I said, the brain actually has quite accurate information about things. It's remembered lots of things. So it's almost sometimes we need to dial down our rationality, if you like, and just really allow that intuition to come forward. And it's not that the intuition is, is not designed to give us a right or wrong answer necessarily, but it's, th- it's there to guide us in a way. So in, in conjunction with our rational with rationality. Um, so obviously we need to look at the facts and figures and different situations. But that in combination with a kind of gut feeling can often be really, really powerful. I think this is where emotional and situational awareness kind of merge. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the other. And the other pillar, of course, we haven't really talked about is emotional awareness. So really tuning into your your emotions. And I think one of the really important things is to uh, to tune in to both your positive and your negative emotions. I think a lot of the time people try and suppress the negative emotions because none of us really like to feel scared or angry or disgusted. But actually, all of these emotions are there for a good reason. You know, they're there to kind of really help us navigate the world in a sense um and you know things do go wrong so we need to kind of look out for what might go wrong you know what are the worst case scenarios so those kind of negative emotions are actually very useful they're giving us good information so it's really important i think to to tune in to those negative emotions but also we need to tune in to the positive emotions as well because we know that they actually um are very nurturing you know they will really kind of help us so things like curiosity um gratitude, all of that is, you know, is really energizing and it's really vital to keep us kind of energetic and and also to keep us relaxed because the negative emotions tend to be quite um, activating, if you like, and they put us on high alert or high vigilance. 
which in some situation is exactly what we need. You know, we need to be vigilant. But there are times when we need to just relax a bit and chill out. So things like contentment, you know, happiness, all of those things will do, will just help us to actually relax a little bit and, and feel safe. So you mentioned sometimes we need to be vigilant. You also mentioned, to some degree, the power of optimism. And so how do you think about that healthy relationship or healthy tension between optimism and pessimism. You know, many people in this area like to talk about toxic positivity. You know, when it, when it goes too far can be not a good thing. So how do you think about the balance of, because clearly the science is there, optimists live longer, they're healthier. You know, you want to be an optimist, you want to be positive. When does it cross over? How do you think about that that healthy balance? Is it 50-50? Is it 80-20? Is it, how do you think about that? Exactly. Well, I think one of the things I actually did, a first book I wrote, which came out a couple of years ago, was um, was called Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain, on exactly this topic, actually. So the rainy brain is obviously the more pessimistic brain. Sunny brain is the, is the more optimistic brain. And I kind of really talked about the science there showing that we absolutely need both. And the reason why the, the negative stuff is is stronger is because the, the rainy brain is relatively more important in a sense, because it's always more important to um, detect things that might harm us in some way than things that are going to benefit us. You know, both are the, the two big draws of our attention, if you like, are, are the bad stuff and the good stuff. I mean, they're, they're the two things that really grab our attention. But it's always a bit more important to notice the bad stuff, the things that might actually go wrong. Um, so I think we, we absolutely need both. And one of the reasons I wrote Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain was to try and get away from the idea that optimism is just about positive thinking. Because um, what the research has actually shown is that there are there are at least four or five different elements to, to optimism. So one is obviously positive thinking. So thinking things will work out for the best, but also positive actions is really important. So actually taking positive actions. But another component that people often don't think about is um, persistence. Um, and there's a really beautiful experiment. It was actually done by a woman called Susan Sagerstrom, an American uh, psychologist. And I've replicated her study many times in, in just lab groups with our students in Oxford, where what we do is very simply, we give students a questionnaire. Uh, so we divide them into optimists and pessimists based on a questionnaire. And then we give them a little test. And the test is simply, um, we give them five jumbled up letters, you know, an, an anagram where you give five jumbled up letters and people have to come up with an English word as quickly as they can. So we give these one after the other. And particularly with Oxford students who tend to get very competitive, we tell them, you know, you need to do this quite quickly and try and solve as many as you, as you can in the next kind of couple of minutes. And what we do is actually sneakily on about the third anagram, it's actually an impossible anagram. So there's five letters where there's no English word they can come up with. Um, so the simple test is how long does it take people before they give up, you know, before they actually say, I can't think of anything. And and time and time again, I'd say 99% of the time, we find that those who are, are the optimists just you know, take a little bit longer before they give up than the pessimists. Now, that's nothing to do with positive thinking or positive actions. That's pure persistence. And my kind of sense is that that's exactly 
the kind of element of optimism that helps entrepreneurs, for example. Um, it's just that persistence, the ability to just keep going that little bit longer, which actually, as you can see, isn't really anything to do with positive thinking. So I got a little bit annoyed, actually, about all the self-help books that said, all you need to do is think very positively and everything will be great. Um, clearly, that's just not the case. I mean, if if you you know, God forbid, if you have some kind of lump somewhere, you know, and if you decide, oh, I'll just think positively about it, you know, everything will be fine. Clearly, that's not going to be the case. You need to go out and get it, go to a doctor and get it checked out. But likewise, in, in business, I think um, that ability to just keep going, you know, when things get really hard, and optimists just tend to have that ability to do that for a little bit longer. And and as I said, that it's a beautiful little, little experiment, and it works almost every time. And uh, I think really illustrates that that's a really important element of optimism that isn't isn't to do with positive thinking really so i think it's those another i mean we're probably running out of time a little bit but there's another component of optimism is is to do with control and we know that can be very very empowering and um, so people who are prone to depression for example often tend to feel very out of control that they're kind of just they're buffered about by you know things that happen outside themselves and they feel they've no real control over their own destiny if you like like we don't have any control if i you know to some degree we, us humans like to think we have control but the reality exactly. you know exactly yeah exactly but i think what the research shows is that even even when that control is illusory optimists tend to have more of a sense of control and again there's some nice experiments we do where we have kind of a sequence of flashing lights and people are asked to press buttons and they're asked you know are you actually controlling the lights or not um, and the reality is actually it's quite random so there's no control over the lights but optimists are much more likely to say yeah i think i've got a little bit of control i kind of maybe 20 percent of the time i'm having some control over the sequence um, and even when that's illu an illusion it's not actually true um, it's still actually very empowering it gives you a great sense of empowerment just the feeling that actually you do have some control over your life is um is, is actually quite empowering so so i think there's a lot of really interesting research around optimism which is nothing to do with of thinking really so and i think that's often um where the benefits come from so i think that's so fascinating what, what's like the most interesting piece of research on optimism you've come across recently well i think it's, it's not it probably it's one of the the studies i really love and it's not at all recent actually it was a study done oh i can't remember now but way way back and, and it was it was done on you may have come across this before it's quite a well-known study it was done on a group of nuns and what the researchers found is they actually found diaries of nuns who were, I think, were had joined a convent in like the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but the beauty of the study was they found the diaries that these nuns had written. And in those days, everyone wrote a journal. So they wrote quite detailed diaries about their lives and what was going on in their lives. So it's not the best data set, but based on those diaries, they basically figured out which nuns were more optimistic and who, who was more pessimistic to the kind of things they wrote in their diary. But the beauty of the study was that the nuns obviously lived in a particular similar way. You know, they all lived in a convent. They um, they didn't drink alcohol generally. They generally didn't smoke. And they had very similar diets. They had very similar kind of lifestyles. But most importantly, they had really good medical records over about 60 or 70 years. So there was all, they had access to all of the medical records. Um, and so what they found was over the whole kind of lifespan, when they divided people into optimists and pessimists based on the diaries, those people who were more optimistic actually not only had a much healthier life all the way through and, and less illness, less physical illness, 
but they actually lived an average of about 10 years longer than the pessimistic nuns. So it's a very famous study, but um, quite an old study. You asked me for the most recent one, but it's always been one of my favorite studies because I think it's just so powerful. And, and of course, more recent research has backed that up in terms of, um, you know, a better research design is obviously a prospective study to follow people, you know, at, at over time rather than retrospective. But nevertheless, I, I will say that's just a great study and, and, and really did show quite dramatic differences in, in, as I said, not only the amount of illness and, and physical ill health, but also, uh, you know, actually longevity was very, was about difference by about 10 years. I love it. And I, I want to come back to this idea of optimism and, and bringing, being pragmatic about it. And so, you know, for example, I am definitely an optimist. My wife, Colleen, who's also my co-founder and co-CEO, less optimistic. And sometimes when we're faced with something, whether it's with our business or in our personal life that she's really struggling with, she's, she's more prone to anxiety than I am. You know, she's really struggling with it. We'll do this exercise. We'll say, okay, what's the worst thing? Let's say you're worried about this thing over here. Let's walk through the worst thing that can happen. You know, it could go through this and that and so forth. And you walk through it. And what we find ends up happening most of the time you, you walk through this whole thing of how this could potentially unwind in a way that you, you, that you wouldn't like. And it's really not that bad. And it exactly. helps you kind of like dimensionalize the worry. And it doesn't help all the time, but sometimes it helps. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, I think it's really interesting. And I think a lot of that comes from experience as well. So so one of the, the facts that people often find quite surprising, actually, is that we actually become more optimistic as we get older. So older people tend to be much more optimistic than younger people, which which often is, is, is one of those surprising findings. And, and I think that's probably because, you know, the older we get and the more life experience we have, we've actually been through a lot more. So you know, if you talk to a teenager or a young person, they might kind of think, oh, you know, if, if I don't pass this exam, that's it. My life's finished. You know, I'm really I'm not going to be able to cope. Everything is going to go wrong after that. And um, was actually, you know, when we've been around a bit longer, we know actually that's not the case that, you know, you do have setbacks. Things won't work out, but actually you will get around it and you'll get over it. And, and as we said before, you know, maybe even in very bad situations, sometimes good opportunities come from that. Um, and, you know, I have a friend, for example, during the, the lockdown um, who uh, he was very unlucky. He'd, uh, he was a chef and he um, worked in a big restaurant in London for quite a long time, but had saved up money and opened his own restaurant. He really wanted to set up a kind of a small high-end restaurant in, in Oxfordshire. Um, and things were going really, really well. He was getting a local uh, base of customers. Um, and literally about five months later, the first lockdown happened. So all the restaurants were shut and he was shut down for about, I think, 18 months or more. But actually, um, during that period, what he decided to do was to do um, almost like takeaway. So really nice high end did dinners where uh, people could just come to the front of the restaurant, collect the stuff and just heat it up in the ovens. All they had to do is heat things up. He gave detailed instructions so people could have restaurant quality food in their own homes, basically in the lockdown. And of course, he did a roaring trade. It really, really took off and did really well. And actually, when all the pandemic and lockdowns were finished, that part of, the, of his business is actually probably the most successful. You know, he now still has his restaurant; it's doing very well. But actually, it's these high-end kind of takeaways um, is actually doing really well. So, 
So from that kind of really pretty dire situation, he managed to find an opportunity, which he, he wouldn't have thought of if, if we hadn't had the lockdowns. He almost certainly wouldn't have, have thought of that. So so I think that does happen quite a lot that, you know, and I think the more experience we have of life, the more likely we are to have been through all sorts of situations. And, and therefore, you often realize, actually, it's not as it, it often is not quite as bad as you might imagine. The, the thought is is often far worse than the reality. Well, I also think it speaks to the power of action versus inaction. And look, that's somewhat of a happy ending, but sometimes there aren't happy endings. And with that said, sometimes you're faced with adversity and, you know, on an extreme end, sitting in the corner and crying and feeling sorry for yourself. And not to say that that doesn't happen sometimes and that's okay, but that's, you know, there's the famous cliche or line, complaining is not a strategy. Sometimes when there are no good answers, you just need to take action. That could be as little as I'm just going to show up to my office and not know what the hell I'm going to do, but I'm just going to go there. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I may be staring at the wall, but I'm going to do something. Absolutely. And, and I think, and sometimes, you know, also, you know, going away and just having a cry or whatever, that could also be. And, and, and that's exactly that's exactly what I talk about in Switchcraft, that, you know, it's about, um, you know, there is no one size solution fits all. So it's, it really is about having a whole variety of, of strategies and, and kind of not beating yourself up, I suppose, if there are times where you really just have to drop everything and do nothing. And, you know, and, and actually that's the way of coping with some adversity. But I think you're absolutely right. Like generally, some kind of action is definitely going to help. So, so to close the loop and come full circle in this show, how do we in our day-to-day practice in, in the same way if we want to be strong, we need to do strength training. If we want to uh, be better equipped to, to deal with anxiety or uncertainty, maybe we practice meditation or we do breath work. If we want to be agile mentally, what, what are some of the necessary day-to-day practices uh, that we can incorporate? Is it gratitude? Is it meditation? I, these are just some of the themes I've heard. What, what are those things that anyone listening can start doing to start to become a little bit more flexible? Yeah, exactly. And I think I, I do give lots of exercises in the book about um, things that will help you. So one kind of quite fun thing to do is to, um, the first thing is to say that, you know, multitasking is a bit of a myth. You know, we often think we're multitasking, but actually what's happening in multitasking is we're actually switching very rapidly from one thing to the other. So we can set up little exercises to practice that. Um, so I give some examples for, you know, where you could say have a timer that's maybe set for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever the sensible time is. And you could pick a couple of tasks, like things like, you know, writing an email, you know, maybe ringing up, booking a restaurant, booking, you know, it's having those kind of tasks that, you know, isn't going to take too long. Um, but you have a timer that goes off after, say, a couple of minutes. Um, and as soon as that timer goes off, you have to switch to the next task. Even if you haven't finished what you're doing, you switch to the next one. And then when the timer goes off again, you switch to the third one. And then when the timer goes off, you go back to the first one again. So so literally, just the more you practice that, um, you actually will get much faster at kind of switching and learning to switch very rapidly from one thing to the other. Um, and even though that's generally not a good thing to do, because I, I do talk a lot about, you know, it's very important to have a little gap in between things. So so I think in the book I say that, you know, like every every new beginning starts with an ending. We have to end something first and, and disengage from it, if you like, and have a little gap between things before we move on. Otherwise the brain gets very drained. Um, but actually 
that kind of as an exercise, a training exercise, that kind of switching exercise can be really effective because it really is, uh, you know, it helps people to switch very, very rapidly. Um, another kind of way of just to test your flexibility is is a well-known kind of, it's, it's a children's game we probably have all played where just take a common everyday object and just try and think of as many different uses of that as you can. So, for example, a coffee cup, you know, is great for holding coffee, but you could also use it to catch a spider if it's empty, you know, you could use it as a pen holder. So just taking a common object and trying to, and playing a bit of a game of, you know, how many different objects can you think of? And that can be just a fun way of of kind of keeping your brain flexible, if you like, and, and trying to get as agile as you can. Another thing is, you know, Switchcraft is, I suppose, all about encouraging you to travel, you know, travel in the world, uh, to see different points of view, really, to really expose yourself to different perspectives. Um, so it's almost like mental travel, if you like. So, you know, as you said, we can go on online, for example, on social media and deliberately, you know, challenging yourself by um, exposing yourself to different perspectives, things that you know that might f- you might feel uncomfortable with or you don't you aren't going to agree with. But just exposing yourself to those different viewpoints and perspectives um, can be a really good exercise actually for the brain to to demonstrate that actually there are lots of different perspectives on common things. You know, you might think that, you know, everyone thinks the same way because most of the people I know think in a certain way. But actually, when you start really traveling both physically, traveling to different countries and different cultures, but also traveling online and and looking at different perspectives. All of those things can be really helpful exercises to just really kind of keep your brain open open to new experiences and and agile. It sounds like exploring could play a significant role here. That that could be as simple as maybe taking a different path to your morning walk to coffee. Absolutely, exactly. And again, as I said, you know, it's, um, it's, it's about kind of breaking up habits in a sense. I mean, habits are really useful in some situations, but sometimes deliberately trying to break up those habits and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone a bit, it just kind of wakes your brain up a bit. Because I think once we we have a lot of habits, our brain tends to almost go asleep because it doesn't have to think too much about stuff. So simply doing something different, as you said, like a, a different way to work or whatever, um, that can really help your brain to actually wake up and say, oh, okay, I better, better pay a bit more attention here. And I love, I really love the exercise of the coffee cup. Let's see the, all the different ways we, we can exactly. leverage this coffee cup. And just take anything, like any everyday object. And if you do that on a regular basis, it just, it kind of, you can imagine it almost, you can almost feel your mind loosening up a bit and becoming a bit more open and say, okay. And that's where, you know, children are great at that. So that's where we said children can be much more flexible. Like if you ask a, a seven or eight year old to do something like that, they'll instantly come up with lots and lots of different um you know, uses of, of any kind of common object. Whereas as we get older, we tend to get a bit more rigid. We think, oh, no, that's for that. So therefore, you, you know, but actually the more you practice something as simple as that, it can really liven your brain up a bit, really, and make you start thinking in, in a much more flexible and open way. Fascinating. Elaine, thank you so much. Well, great. Thanks, Jason. Really nice talking to you.